If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 7 this morning. John chapter 7 as we continue on in John's gospel this morning, continuing the account of Jesus and his brothers around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Let me begin in verse 1, reading down through verse 18 this morning, and then we'll take verses 10 through 18 as our consideration for this morning's sermon. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths or tabernacles, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned? having never been educated. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. These are spiritual truths that must be spiritually discerned, spiritually known, spiritually seen. And apart from the work of your spirit, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, these are spiritual truths that must be understood spiritually in the hand of the spirit. Carnal men cannot understand them. So, just as that is true, we are dependent upon you, that you would make them known to us. And more than anything, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do what Jesus promised us you would do. And that is to come and to remind us of all that Jesus said, to testify of him, and to apply the truth of Jesus Christ to every heart and mind here so that we are all without excuse under the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ, 
such that we must bow our knee to him, acknowledging that he is God and that you have been sent to testify of him, Holy Spirit, that we might know that the Father has sent him and that all that he says is true and ours is but to believe. And we pray that you would do this through your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We as fallen creatures cannot identify with Jesus in so many ways. Though he came in his humanity and identified with us in every way, we do not identify with him in every way as we should. And in saying that, I say that because Jesus had one singular priority, one singular mission from which he never was distracted or turned away. And that was to do in absolute perfection, with absolute authority, the will of his Father. I wish I could say that about my own life. That in every second of my life, I have only sought and wanted to do the will of the Father. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be able to say? But we can't. We're sinners. We're fallen. Every one of us. And yet we look at Jesus and we, we realize what a gulf there is between us and between Him. He only sought to do at all times the will of His Father and was never led off track by that. He neither sought celebrity nor controversy. Though in His absolute perfection... He did not seek it. He also did not shrink from it. While humanly speaking, ours would be an impossible task to hold that. Well, we can't hold that. Jesus does. Always doing the will of the Father. Neither seeking controversy, seeking fame, but neither shrinking from it either. Jesus had no struggles that we would have had or have. In his humanity, Jesus lived a life of perfect and absolute obedience to the Father's will at every single term. Listen, Jesus is not even swayed by his own mother. Jesus is not even swayed by his own brothers. Not even the family could Steer Jesus off course. Not even those sentimental bonds would certainly Jesus as human would have had. He loved his mother tenderly. We see that at the end of his life as he is on the cross and he says to John, Behold your mother. Not woman any longer as in John 2, but your mother. Jesus obviously has affections for his earthly family, but not even those were enough to steer him away from the Father's will. Jesus desired and Jesus did whatever the Father had laid forth for him to do. As will always be the case, and you can take this to the bank, believer. As will always be the case, Jesus moves according to the speed and direction of God's sovereign and providential plan, always. That's true in Jesus. You know, it's true in us as well. 
There's nothing that we face in our life that God has not ordained and providentially orchestrated so that he is glorified. And we can rest in that. God is so sovereign over all and he's irrefutable in his wisdom. And Jesus here in John 7 is bowing his own knee to that in his earthly ministry. He came to do the Father's will. And so the passage before us this morning, I want you to note in verses 10 to 18, reveals to us the intentions of God against the opinions of men. And how Jesus is unswayed by the opinions of men in order to accomplish the intentions of his Father. And we, of all people, should be most rejoicing over that, for it led to our own salvation. That Jesus did not become distracted. That Jesus was always obedient. That is our good news. That Jesus did do these things as he did them. And so first of all, look with me if you will and see that Jesus controls the revealing of the truth. We saw last week his brothers are saying to him, Jesus, now listen. For free, we're going to be your your public relations department here, and we know that it must be true that you want the prestige and the notoriety. I mean, after all, look what you've done. Look how many people were, at least at one point until you blew it, were following you in Galilee. They loved you. Go do the same things here. I mean, that's why you're here, right? To be known publicly? Then don't do it privately. Go to Jerusalem. Go to the feast. Do what you've done. Let the crowds see and hear you. Jesus says, no. No, because that's not the will of my Father. And it comes not from a desire to see the Father glorified in the Son. Your statement, my dear brothers, comes from a heart of unbelief. And so Jesus refuses to go up to the temple with them. He refuses to go to the feast with them. But as we read this morning, after his brothers go, verse 10, after Jesus sends them away, distinguishing himself from them, distinguishing between the intentions of God and the opinions of men as to how this worked, Jesus finally goes up to Jerusalem. But he does so because it is at his discretion and it is in his perfect timing that truth will be revealed. He is dedicated, in other words, to revealing the truth that he will preach in a certain way. I'll never forget when I was in college working for the department that I worked for. I, was, I interacted a great deal with different department heads and I learned a lot. I didn't always like it. In fact, I tried to quit that job on more than one occasion. But the Lord had me there for a reason. I I really did not like my job. But I learned. And one of the things I learned was from an older department head who was in charge of development and future projects and initiatives for the college. And he said, you know, this is what's going on. This is what's going to, we're we're actually working towards, and this is going to happen at some point in the future, but, you know, this is all confidential for now. And he made a statement that I'll never forget. He said, just remember, 
that the timing of the release of information is as important as the information itself. And that, that, that has stuck with me all these years. That when you say something is often as, as important as what you say and how you say it. And so Jesus here is really an embodiment of that. It's not that Jesus just comes and blurts out everything at once that is true about him and about his mission. Jesus has a strategic way in which he will deliver his messages so that it accomplishes the Father's purposes. Again, that being Jesus' only concern. Jesus is not concerned for the the crowds. He's not concerned about his popularity. He's not concerned about focus groups or polls. He is concerned that his father's plan be executed perfectly so that his father might be glorified. Jesus did not heed the exhortation of his brothers. Why? It wasn't the Father's timing. I want you to consider with me for just a moment. What if Jesus, swayed by the opinions of men, even his own brothers, what would have happened had he followed their advice about him, about his message, about his life, which apparently they know very little about? And if they do know, they're rejecting it. What if Jesus had actually listened in the first nine verses of chapter 7? Well, number one, his sovereignty would have been diminished. His brothers could have claimed authority over him, that they were the ones who got him to come. Hey, hey, look, we got Jesus to you. Look, this is our brother. You know, kind of the, the proud brother moment. You know, hey, we, we did this. He wasn't going to come, but man, we talked him into it. Why don't you guys thank us a little bit for whatever he gives you? No, he's not a God who will be changed by the whims or the opinions of mortal men. His sovereignty would have been diminished. Secondly, his true identity as God of very God would have been diminished. You see... What the Jewish people in Jesus' day were wanting, what they're still wanting, is a Messiah who will come and rule politically. Who will rule and reign in such a way that his enemies are placed under his feet. And that day, brothers and sisters, is coming. But they wanted it then, and they wanted it now, and they wanted it on their terms, and they wanted it how they thought it should look. And had Jesus gone with his brothers to that feast, as was with every Jewish feast, a fervor of expectation that Messiah had come to rule in such a way that all of his enemies at that moment would be placed under him. And Jesus, had he gone in that understanding, with that Uh, guys about him, he would have been swept away in political fervor and his true identity and his true mission swept away. He would have only been the one who had come to overthrow the Romans, a mere earthly ruler in a long line of earthly rulers. But we know that's not who he is, don't we? He's not merely a king to cast off earthly yokes. No, he is the king of every king. 
He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of salvation. He's not merely one in a line of kings or even primarily concerned with taking down other kings. He is the king of righteousness. He is the prince of peace. And he will come and he will deliver that message in a way that emphasizes and guards the will of the Father to reveal that truth about him. He has a higher purpose. He has a a perfect knowledge of why he is there and what he is to accomplish. And even as routine as going to a feast may have been in their days, it happened year after year. You think about it. The Jewish people in Jesus' day spent an inordinate amount of time going back and forth to Jerusalem. They didn't jump on the train. They had to go by foot or by donkey. Three times a year it was required of conscientious males to go to Jerusalem for a feast. That's a lot. And even in something as mundane as that, Jesus went... According to his own terms. He went when he determined to go. According to the father's will. He went how the father had determined him to go. And he proclaimed what the father had for him to proclaim when he was there. Everything by divine appointment. And as he does so. All of these things form the platform upon which he stands. To clearly communicate his saving Hope that can come from him alone. Anything else would have swept that away, would have clouded those realities. And so Jesus stays while his brothers have gone. And as Jesus stays, we need to be reminded that this will be the last time Jesus is in Galilee prior to his crucifixion. It's a, it's a farewell tour, if you will. We don't know exactly what Jesus is up to and All of these days between his brothers leaving and him leaving. But we do know these are his last days before his crucifixion in a land that he had so poured himself into. And preaching to the people there. This land that at one point seemed a fertile field of tremendous potential and overwhelming response to his ministry. Yet they had missed their moment. They had missed Jesus' purpose. They had been looking for other things, even in Galilee. And Jesus moves from a hard place to the rocky place of Judea. Notice what the text says. But after or when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, not in a way that they had encouraged him to do. If you'll go back, remember, there's some, don't, don't do this privately, do this publicly. And the text is very clear, referring back to that. He did not do it according to their plans, but he went as if in secret, literally privately. You know, Jesus' problem is not that he can't gather a crowd. Jesus can gather a crowd. Jesus did gather crowds wherever he went. But the problem is this, that he could, for all the undesirable reasons of men at this point in his ministry, gather a crowd for the wrong reasons. And he's determined not to be caught in that. And so for three to four days ahead of him, these brothers go and they join the feast. And whether he is there 
for the entirety of the time. We, we're not exactly sure when he arrives, but we know we don't see him in a public fashion until halfway through. And notice what's going on as we await the public arrival of Jesus, the, the, the very focal point that Jesus becomes in the feast. Look at verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him. Oh, isn't that nice? They were seeking Jesus. They were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Now, again, all confidence in our English Bibles, but, but this is not a good sign. They're not seeking Jesus in a way that is filled with faith. They're seeking Jesus for one reason, and that is to kill him. And he knows it. That much is made clear in verse 1. He knows that the Jews there are seeking to kill him. Both are in the imperfect state, the imperfect verb here. They are seeking. That means always. There's never an end to their seeking. They're constantly saying. There's no end or satisfaction to what they're they're saying. And they're not going to rest until they find their man. And their tone is even one of hostility. It's really sanitized in the English. I hate to say that because I don't want to destroy your confidence in your, your Bibles. But it has been smoothed out for translation. If we were to read it literally, it would say, More along the lines of, where is that man? That guy. You ever had anybody say that to you? Oh, you're that person. And you know exactly what they mean. They're not talking about your identity. They're talking about what they don't like about you. That's what's in their mind. And the Jews are all saying, where is that man? Where is he? Where's that guy? Where's the one who troubles us? It's a vehement tone to their searching. It's a vehement tone to their asking. Jesus knows all about this. He knew that this was what they would ask. He knew this is how they would ask it from the beginning. And thus he did not go. And what is that purpose? To kill him. Go back to chapter 5 verse 18. Just be reminded this is where he had previously been. If you were to put it in the terms of the old westerns, Jesus is in chapter 5 healing the paralytic man. He deals with the, the uproar of the Pharisees and then he goes away to Galilee. In chapter 7 they would say, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Jesus goes back. And he goes back to this, verse 18 of chapter 5. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more. There's that intensifier. All the more to kill him. Well, he's been gone for a period of months now. But he comes back and the desire is the same and he knows it's the same. That's why he doesn't go up publicly like his brothers want him to. Because they are still saying the same thing in verse 11 of chapter 7 that they are saying in chapter 5, verse 18. Whereas that man, we seek to kill him. Now, we'll have more to say about that next Lord's Day, Lord willing. It's carnal. It is satanic. It is nothing short of opposition to Jesus. Jesus. 
And might I note to you a very dangerous mentality that always exists about true biblical understanding of Jesus? Look at the end of verse 12. We need to know where he is because he leads people astray. For the greater good of all Israel, we need to know where this man is. Because we think he he leads people. We're concerned about you. We're not concerned about the people. If they were concerned about the people, they would have helped the paralytic man in John chapter 5 and they never lifted a finger. They don't care. But they do care about silencing Jesus. All while couching it in the, in the language of the greater good for the people. And he and his followers must be silenced. Where is that man? We must find him. Secondly, as we come to this interaction among the crowds, verse 12, we find that Jesus clarifies the opinions of who men think he is. In the midst of this frenetic questioning, this constant moving about by the Pharisees, looking for Jesus, searching for Jesus, the crowd begins to have their own conversation among themselves, and the crowd is divided. The pollsters are uncertain as to where things really stand, and yet it is a division that cannot stand. You must be for Christ or you must be against Christ. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. It it may start that way, but you will be forced to render a verdict one way or the other. And Jesus comes to the feast when he does, not just to reveal himself as his brothers had hoped. He comes to force men and women, boys and girls, To a verdict. You must either believe or you must deny. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, you this morning must decide. Who is Jesus? Not that it changes his identity, but it will change your relationship to him. Is he who he said he is? Has he done what he said he came to do? You must render a verdict. You may not stay in the middle ground. Some saying, well, he is a good man. But notice, he's just good and he's just a man. They are not saying he is the perfect son of God. The holy one whom has been promised from ages long past. No, he is just a good man. Merely good, merely a man. The others are saying, no, he's a deceiver and both are wrong. We know that. We know that. He is holy God come to redeem and lead all who will believe into the truth and condemn those who will reject the truth. He's come to lead them into life everlasting, his own life. Of those who had even sinned against him, he came to redeem them. The fear of the Pharisees creeps up though, doesn't it? They are talking in hushed tones, and this is, becomes an interesting theme. Jesus 
not only hears the hushed tones, he hears the tones that are never even spoken audibly. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 tells us he knows the hearts of men. He knew what was in their heart. He knew about this hatred and this rejection. And so the Pharisees think they're being quite clever by grumbling that low intensity, low volume amongst themselves. Like, hey, uh, have you seen that man? Jesus hears it. Jesus knows what's going on. They are saying, no, he leads people astray. In verse 13, no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Why Jews? The, the Pharisees, the leaders. No one's wanting to say it publicly because even debating it out loud would be seen as treasonous. Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 10. We read this, if your brother, your mother's son, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend, who is as your own soul, entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom, you neither, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you, or far from you, from the one end of the earth to the other end. You shall not yield to him, or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death, because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. See, the Pharisees have this running in the background of their mind. They think they're doing God a favor. The people don't want to whisper about it. The people don't want to talk about it because the ones who are saying he's a good man may actually end up being accused of being in league with him. And in their mind, he deserves to die according to the law. So they stray away. They stray away. And the irony among the Pharisees is this. That the fear is not of error. The fear is of the truth. The fear is of the truth. You see, when, when sinners reject who Christ is, they fear the truth. They don't fear error. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. Here they are afraid of the truth. They are afraid of being freed from their lives. They would rather serve error. They would rather serve their own ignorance, their own pride, than to acknowledge the truth. It is the truth they are actually seeking to silence. Using error as their pretext, using a twisted version of the law. That's what false teachers always do. They twist the truth. The people that concern me are not the people who come to you with open air. My fear is people who come to you with the Bible using Christian language twist it and cause confusion. You can spot the false teachers that you see on TV a mile away. 
You know who they are. You know the circus they dragged to town. But far more dangerous are the pious people who come and say, well, I need to tell you and you need to listen to me and you need to follow this new interpretation that I have. and You need to hear me. They are far more dangerous. And that is exactly what the the Pharisees have done. Over 700 additions to the law of Moses were added by the Pharisees at the time of Jesus. Think they're concerned with the truth? No, they're concerned with concealing error. In fact, the more sin and the more error that are propagated among a people, the more laws you have to have. And that's exactly what's going on with the Pharisees. Gross abuses of the law. So they invent more laws to cover those laws, to cover their sin. Fear becomes the result. These Pharisees are absolutely stricken with fear. But that's the very opposite of the truth. Perfect love Cast out fear. Unvarnished truth casts out fear. And in its place breeds love. Would you describe Israel at the time of Jesus and the people in Israel at the time of Jesus as existing in a loving, truth-filled, confident atmosphere? Not on your life. They're terrified. Of the Pharisees. They're terrified of violating the law. It was a miserable place. Truth never produces legalistic external conformity. Ever. Let me say that again. Truth never produces mere legalistic external conformity. That is not holiness, that is not righteousness. That is not adherence to the word of God. Those things will be produced, but you know where they will be produced? In a heart that has been affected by a mind that is saturated in truth. And you will do it from the heart, not from external conformity. And Jesus is dealing with people who have been browbeat with external conformity and yet are gripped by fear. They are not free. They are fearful and they are willing to do whatever it takes, as we'll see next week, even up to the point of violating the law itself directly given by Moses, not their interpretation of it, by Moses himself. They are willing to violate that in order to assuage their own fear that results from error. I want you to notice verse 14 now. Verse 14 provides the small hinge upon which this great door swings. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Someone shows up on the scene to teach the truth. Jesus, now in the Father's perfect timing, stands to deliver the truth. That's good news. That's great news. 
Someone has come who is finally going to teach something. We're going to get somewhere this morning, folks. There's somebody who knows what he's talking about. This isn't a doctor who's Googling it while he's in the room with you, guessing at what's wrong with you. This man knows the truth, and he's about to unload it. This isn't a little pep talk. This isn't philosophical musing. This is the truth of God from heaven itself that is about to be poured out on these people because it is the Father's perfect time to throw the pitch, to deliver the strike, to state the truth in unequivocal terms. And Jesus stands up, we would assume by the language used about halfway through this feast. He goes to the temple. He hasn't stayed on the outskirts of the city. He goes to the temple. He gets into the heart of legalism. He gets into the heart of error itself. Though it is called religious, it is still error. And he goes as a preacher and a teacher to unveil the truth. Now listen, he does not go as a participant. He goes as a teacher. He goes as a teacher, as should anyone who holds the word of God. We don't go trembling. We don't go as, as just, well, you know, what I'm about to say is as equal as what you would stand up and say. We go with the confidence and authority that we speak on behalf of God himself. 1 Peter 4.11, if any man is to speak, let him speak as the oracle, the mouthpiece of God. Be confident in Jesus is. He goes to clarify things, not as a mere participant. This morning I was perusing a few things and a pastor said, well, today my talk is going to... I said, talk? What is Talk. Go teach. Go preach. This isn't a conversation. Jesus is not there to, to survey the crowd and say, well, your point's as valid as mine. What does it mean to you? I'll tell you what it means to me. Jesus goes to teach because that is what the Father has ordained for him to do. And he's given him the words to teach. His divine mission, his divine timeline is now, and God providentially is outworking his sovereignty and it's led up to this moment you know john includes the detail and this is this is an important detail jesus comes halfway through in the midst of the feast some might say he's fashionably late i prefer to say he's theologically late because in coming when he does he's able to make the points that he does he couldn't have done that had he come in the fervor of the beginning of the feast. It had been swept up in some kind of messianic craze, but he comes halfway through. This routine feast, participating like everyone else in coming. His actions, however, will emphasize the truth. By showing up late, Jesus, in a sense, shows the banality and the Foolishness of little temporal booths made from sticks. Jesus shows up late. Where's your booth, Jesus? Don't have one. Why not? Don't need one. 
Why don't you need one? Because John has already told you. That the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You don't need tabernacles. The tabernacle is here. And I'm showing up late to make the point. I didn't come early to build mine. I show up late without one. Because I am the tabernacle. Remember, that is the same word. Dwelled. Literally, tabernacle. He tabernacles with these people. He stands among them as the point of the feast. Not merely a participant in the feast. They have not come to dwell with God. God has come to dwell with them. There's a big difference. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is God who... Who has come to save his people from their sins. And were he to come like everyone else, they would have missed it. But he stands up among them. A beacon of truth. Leading them not in error, but in truth and in grace, according to John 1.14. He is full of grace and truth. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find that God's provision in the wilderness, which they are celebrating in this week of tabernacles, is the same grace of provision that he now offers in Christ. Christ is the greater bread of life. Haven't we heard that before? Seems like we've, we've heard that a lot in Jesus' recent sermons. I am the bread of life. It's not the stuff that fell in the wilderness. It's me. It is me. He's not leading error. He is leading in this true grace. And he has come not only to lead into the truth and the grace of truth, but he has come to destroy misconception. By giving the true sense and meaning of the law's shadows. Utterly transforming the view of the Jewish people about their own law. He is the fulfillment of it. As we watch what's going on in Israel, it's tragic, isn't it? It's gut-wrenching. But you know, there's going to come a day when these people are forced to look at the Messiah. And if scholars are right, and I think they are, They will cry out with what Isaiah penned in Isaiah 53. They will lament that they missed the point. Both these people and the people we see on the news today. They've missed the Messiah. And they will mourn over him whom they have pierced. And they will be broken Over their rejection of him. Here is Jesus. Standing in the midst of these people. Clarifying the true meaning of the law. Fulfilling the law on their behalf. On his own timeline. And notice the response of the people. How has this man become learned? How does does he talk like that? 
He's never been educated. Somebody call all the rabbinical schools right now and see if there has ever been a Jesus of Nazareth enrolled. Oh, no. He... He's, he's not on anybody's role. He, he's not an alumni of any of our institutions. How can he talk like that? I'll tell you how. He is authority. He does not merely possess authority. He is power. He has not been given power. He is truth. He does not merely teach truth. And the Pharisees are shocked by the brilliance of Jesus. They are shocked by Jesus' command of Scripture. They are shocked at Jesus' skill at interpretation. Who is this man who has no formal education? Where did he learn to talk like that? And if we think this is the only time this happened, we're misguided. For every time that Jesus speaks, it scandalizes the people in this way. Matthew seven twenty eight. when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their own scribes. Ouch. Ouch. You scribes got nothing. Jesus is the one with authority. Jesus is the one who's really preaching here. You see, in Jesus' day, there was a tradition that you would simply, as a rabbi, as one who had been educated, you would simply quote previous rabbis ad nauseum. And maybe that's why they could pull over what they pulled over. They put the people to sleep. Well, in the... 5th century B.C., Rabbi so-and-so quoted Rabbi so-and-so who quoted Rabbi so-and-so. And the tradition of this and the tradition of that. As Steve Lawson says about a bad sermon, I was there a month that morning. (laughs) Utterly irrelevant. But that's not Jesus. Jesus stands up and he teaches, not quoting the rabbis, but quoting the word and teaching the word. He doesn't play their game. He demonstrates more authority than they could ever dream of having. And they say, where did this come from? Where did this come from? He's not from our schools. And Jesus answers in verse 16, My teaching is not my own, but it is Him who sent me. It's His. It's His. The Jewish accreditation agency is unhappy with this man, but what can you do? The man teaches as having authority. The question they ask was a rhetorical one. They didn't want an answer, but Jesus gives them one. Where did he find his education? Jesus says, well, I'll tell you where, because the teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. That's what he said in chapter 5 that nearly got him killed then. I and my father are one. I do the work of my father. His knowledge, his acumen, his skill make him an existential threat to false teachers. Edward Klink says the Jews challenge the ability of Jesus to teach. Jesus challenges the ability of the Jews to hear. Oh, you didn't hear? Can you not hear what I'm saying? 
because I'm simply saying what my Father who sent me told me to say. So if you're not hearing me, you're not... Connect the dots, folks. You're not hearing the Father. But we have the law. No, you really don't. But we know the answers, not if you don't know me. But we recognize Moses and the fathers, but you don't recognize me. They reject the authority upon which Jesus speaks. They are actually scandalized by the very thing they claim to love and uphold. Jesus says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. What is the Father's will? What is it? To believe on Jesus Christ, the one whom he has sent. That's the Father's will. And Jesus says, if you were willing to do the Father's will, and you were really concerned with what the Father has taught, then you would believe. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself, whether I am this lone ranger that you're so concerned about and has accused me of being. But if you believed and were willing to believe, you would know that that's not the case. You stand condemned by your own law. You stand condemned by your own blasphemy. You've rejected God. And what's worse, as you read down in the story, and some of you probably have already connected this dot because you're a bright group, the blasphemy has gone to the point of calling Jesus a demon. That's how far down the rabbit hole you go when you reject truth. God, you're a liar. God, you're the devil. Tremendous blasphemy. There are only two options this morning for us. As we sew this up, you will either accept Jesus as the Son of God in all of His perfect mission, all of His perfect being, or you will render him a heretical deceiver. One or the other. There is no other choice. You must choose one or the other. What do you believe? What do you say about Jesus? Notice verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Years ago, a man named Herbert Lockyer went through the annals of history at the time and recorded as many statements of people on their deathbed as he could find. He entitled the little book, The Last Words and Sayings of Saints and Sinners. And a man's last words are often some of his most important words. Some of the last words that Jesus ever spoke on this earth occur in John chapter 17. And Jesus says this, Father, I have glorified you on the earth. How did he do that? How did he do that? 
by speaking the truth that the Father gave him to speak. By telling the truth that God laid out for him to speak. And to do it in an authoritative way that did not shrink in fear, but rose in glory for the sake of the glory of God. Murray Harris writes this, An ambassador is genuine if his only goal is securing his sender's honor. An ambassador is genuine if his only goal is securing his sender's honor. And Jesus says, that's me. That's me. I don't come seeking my own glory, but I come to tell you this, the one who sent me is true, and I am true because I've told you that. I've glorified the Father, and there is no unrighteousness in me. So as we move into next week, on what basis do you seek to kill me? There is no unrighteousness in me. There is no self-promoting glory in me. Why do you kill me? Why would you seek to kill me? And that is a question they must reckon with. Who do you say that he is? Whose honor do you say Jesus seeks? If it's the Father's glory, then you know he's true. If it's his own, you know he's false. But he sought only to say and to do that which the Father had given him. Down to the timing of showing up at a feast theologically late to make the point. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sovereign plan. Lord Jesus, thank you for the exercise and the demonstration of that sovereignty. Thank you that we can clearly see who you are and what you have come to do. So may we, having seen and heard, respond in faith to your message, to your person. Knowing that in that the Father is glorified. That the Father is pleased. Father, if there's one who has not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I ask that you would soften and break their heart, convince them of the truths of what Jesus said, and cause them to bow their knee to him as the only hope of salvation, the only one who can and will forgive their sins when they call upon him. We're thankful for that promise. We're thankful for the faithfulness of Jesus, our great high priest, who hears the cries of your people and never loses any of us, but saves us for eternity. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.